are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. Stalking is held to be a terrifying ordeal to go through. The ordeal that Cindy James went through at the hands of her stalker stands out as an especially horrible case, which lasted from 1982 to 1989. Shortly after Cindy, a nurse who lives in Vancouver and works with troubled children, separates from her husband, she starts getting strange phone calls. There are things thrown against her house, threats. The police are called and start an investigation, hoping to find out who is committing these crimes and terrifying Cindy. This is not a straight-up story, one that is linear and easily goes from point A, a crime is committed, to point B, the police investigate, to point C, the perpetrator is caught and Cindy can put the ordeal behind her. Instead, we have a case that is more of an alphabet spaghetti than anything else. Just when you feel you have a handle on it, out it slips from your grasp and instead is thrown back into the red bubbling cauldron of confusion. Of course, where everybody starts is that the husband did it. They so often do. Women across the world are most likely to be killed by someone they know, often a partner or former partner. Cindy's husband is South African, a country where the white adult men have something of a dubious reputation among the rest of the world for a particularly difficult mix of arrogance and authoritarianism which is not helped by the tales told by those who knew the couple of his oddly strict approach to things. The 18-year age gap between them also adds to a general discomfort around their relationship. Cindy did accuse him of abusive behaviour, and later he defended himself by saying he only slapped her twice. The phrasing he chooses to defend himself with is thoroughly damning instead, and the naive idea that a limited amount of abuse is acceptable portrays something close to stupidity. One of the policemen who is investigating Cindy's case falls in love with her. It seems as though Cindy, blonde, beautiful, vivacious and caring, was easy to fall in love with. She was probably the perfect maiden for anyone with a white knight complex to rescue. He moves in, but still the stalking, the phone calls, the threats continue. Then after Cindy asks the policeman to move out, after all, it is hard to be around someone who sees you as a project to be rescued, things start to escalate. There are attacks on Cindy. These attacks are vicious and brutal. Cindy is found tied up in her own home. Later, she is attacked while walking her dog in the park. Cindy is too scared to tell people who did it because they've also threatened her family. 
Cindy has by now gathered a support group around her, friends, neighbours and professionals who keep an eye out, who know what is happening and feel scared for her. All the while she remains the private person she has always been. No one hears the full story from Cindy. Everyone gets a little piece of the puzzle. Some people start to doubt Cindy. First, it is the police with their intuitions honed by years of interacting with people in the worst moments of their lives. While some are still meaning over Cindy, hoping that they can be the knight in shining armour, others almost immediately sense that something was off. The stalking and the attacks grow worse. Cindy often sedated during ordeals, yet she refuses to name the person terrorising her. Things are not necessarily adding up and the police at least are beginning to move away from believing Cindy is purely a victim. Then in 1989, Cindy is found dead, tied up with a huge amount of lethal drugs in her system. The police think Cindy has died either by suicide or by accident while trying to again fabricate an attack. And this does appear a probability, except when Cindy's family start pointing out inconsistencies. Her hands had been tied so tightly that one finger had scratched another down to the bone and the amount of drugs in her system would have given her very little time to bind herself so brutally. A coroner's inquest was held with over 80 witnesses in an attempt to find out the truth of what had happened. The inquest was the longest and most expensive in the history of British Columbia. It closed with the verdict that Cindy had died by unknown event. And so the death of Cindy James enters into the hall of mysteries for which there is no absolute answer. But instead, you will waver between the ideas that she did all of it to herself and the disbelief that someone could do all of this to themselves. Although self-destructive behaviour is not a rare thing among humanity, it is the extreme that self-destructive behaviours went to that is shocking. I think, though, given the balance of probabilities, it is most likely that it is Cindy herself who was responsible for her stalking, the attacks and her eventual death. There is nothing so contradictory as a human. I myself had a stalker. It was a stalking that was a bit atypical, that tended to defy the well-worn tropes we have of how stalking happens. An acquaintance that I met through work was the perpetrator, married and with children, which is the first atypical thing. He was someone I'd bump into regularly through my work at the time. We'd chat a bit. He'd occasionally give me a lift. When I had to move flat, I put a general call out for people to help me, and among others, he answered. That was nice. To return the favour, I once looked after his kids when he and his wife needed to spend the day filling out job applications. 
that was nice too. It was all very much on an acquaintance level, nothing close, deep or meaningful. Or so I thought until I did not answer a text. I was out for dinner with friends and saw his text asking about meeting up. It didn't need an immediate answer, so I carried on with dinner, getting home late and rushing into the office the next day, thinking I needed to reply, but I'd do it later when I had time. It had been less than 24 hours since his text, and he came into my workplace specially to see me because I had not answered. It was awkward, inappropriate. I politely made small talk and then excuses to get back to work. I later emailed him and asked him not to come into my workplace without prior notice. And this is when it started. There is a type of person who, as soon as you set out a boundary, steps over it. There are definitely some times when perhaps we haven't communicated clearly or the person genuinely thought they understood and didn't. Mistakes can and do happen and it's not those little mistakes I'm talking about. Rather, it is the people who see a boundary as a challenge. You can tell the difference between those who genuinely make a mistake and those who actually don't respect you. Those who make a mistake when it's pointed out will try not to do it again to remedy it. Those who don't respect you will break your boundaries again and again and again. That is what he did. I thanked him for his help in the past and his friendship, but made it clear that it would not be carrying on and I did not want him to contact me again. He made new social media accounts on apps he had not used before to follow me. I blocked him. He included me in group emails. I did not reply. One day I left for work and when I got to the end of my road, I turned to look so I could cross safely and he was sitting in his car looking at me. He must have driven down my street slightly behind me, pulling up at the crossing as I arrived there. He looked at me and made one of those smiles that is really just a way to stretch your lips. The only thing at the other end of my road is a parking area. Technically, it's a cul-de-sac. It never has through traffic. It was at this point that I went to the police, and they went to have a word with him, and I've never heard from him since. Here is the second atypical thing. Whenever I tell anyone about the situation, they put on a concerned face. They say something along the lines of, that must have been scary. But the thing is, it wasn't. I was angry, really, really angry, possibly close to rage. I hated that this pathetic man had felt his sob stories would be enough for me to disregard my own needs, wants and desires to serve his. I was apoplectic that with everything else going on in my life, he had so often expected me to drop things for him and then pressurise me into keeping closer than I wanted to be. I was especially incandescent but when I told him that one of his friends had asked me out and refused to take no for an answer, he had used it as an opportunity to peacock his feminism 
when all along he was going to do something very similar very soon. I was even more infuriated that because of him, there was now going to be places I could not go. I cleaned my house of everything he had touched. It wasn't a lot. There was a Christmas card and a couple of wee bits here and there. None of it mattered, but I could not stand to have anything in my home that reminded me of him. Afterwards, unlike many stalking victims, and I know I am lucky with my experience not being that bad, I had no need to build myself up. I had more of a need to calm myself down from the thundercloud of virtuous anger I was feeling. What does this have to do with Cindy James? Quite a lot. All through my listening to Death by Unknown event, I had wanted Cindy to not be the kind of person who made these kind of incidents up. There is a hefty vein of misogyny directed towards women victims, where in some twisted logic, they are held responsible for the actions of men. The misogyny does not end there, though. There is also a distrust of what women say. For the longest time, if you report rape, counter-accusations would be levelled against you, such as, you're doing it for the money. Although, strangely, I've never seen any rich rape survivors flashing the cash like lottery winners. There are many ways to get money, which is far easier than going through the years of police investigation into your intimate and private life than having it made public and questioned in court. Another is that it's a reaction to regretting the sex the next day. I have done many, many things that at other points in my life I have regretted or felt ashamed of. No, I did. I kept it to myself. I tucked it away to examine at a later date, sometimes to work out what to do differently next time. I don't know a single person who wants to publicise the things they regret doing Unless it's to talk it through with a trusted friend or to illustrate some life advice. People don't regret having sex and go through years of police investigation into your intimate and private life and having it made public and questioned in court. The idea that women lie about sexual assault and rape, despite this happening in less than 1% of cases, so when a woman is lying about a serious criminal incident, it could be seen as having a detrimental effect on all other women who have truly experienced it. They are seen to be making things harder for those who are honest and upfront, and to a certain extent that is true. They are giving the misogynist fuel for a fire that does not need to burn any longer. So as I myself am a victim of stalking, how do I feel about Cindy James and what is most likely one of the most complex self-stalking cases that has ever been seen? I feel sad. Nothing but sad. Here was a woman who had a lot going for her. She was admired by colleagues, successful and liked. Still, there was something within her that compelled her, despite her education and good fortune, to hurt herself terribly. 
what I see in James is not some kind of mendacious Machiavellian vixen who is out to manipulate all those around her. I see someone who was deeply wounded to an extent that, whether by accident or design, she killed herself. We know her ex-husband was physically abusive at least twice, but probably more often if we're being realistic. Plus, that physical abuse often happens after emotional and psychological abuse. It's likely that Cindy's marriage was very difficult. During the inquest, there was testimony from psychiatrists, several of whom had treated Cindy while alive, which gives their conclusions more credibility. A buffet of disorders were put forward for her behaviour. Histrionic personality disorder, the ever-popular borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. One man who treated her suggested he thought it was highly likely that she had been sexually abused by her father when she was a child. On the podcast, they suggest a brother had done it. Either way, the family remained tight-lipped on that count. So when I look at Cindy James, I don't see a woman who has somehow cheapened my own experience of being stalked. I see someone who was terribly hurt and let down, who was not able to find a safe refuge for herself, and because of that became very, very ill. It is my belief, and I do not suggest that anyone else is to subscribe to this, but when women turn against women, it plays into the hands of patriarchy. This is the case when they set working mums against stay-at-home mums, when they pit child-free women against mothers, when it's boy mums against girl mums. The same pseudo-rivalry is used with women who have been on the receding end, on the receiving end of violence from partners ex-partners, friends or colleagues. The misogynists can't argue that all women are lying because that is quite clearly ridiculous. If they can, however, set the women who are not telling the truth for whatever reason against the women who are, instead of investigating the reason why someone would not tell the truth about such a serious thing and consider what support they need, they have yet again divided and conquered, dissembled and deflected. They have appealed to our most superficial thinking parts and stopped us asking any deeper questions. So when I think about Cindy James, it is with great sympathy. Because in this modern world where so many people are obsessed with blaming and the wrongness of others, to approach people's misdeeds with kindness and compassion and to balance it with accountability is one of the most radical acts of all. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. 
music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow. <laughs>